Life Audio. You're listening to Therapy and Theology, and I'm your host, Carly Merclear. This podcast is a space where we explore popular topics and questions related to the convergence of faith, feelings, spiritual formation, and more. My prayer is that through these conversations, we will grow in our awareness of who we are as beloved children of God, learn to acknowledge our needs and emotions with curiosity and compassion, and rediscover the purpose and power of our unique stories through the lens of the gospel. As a licensed therapist and ministry leader, I want to give voice to the many questions we face while cultivating a clearer view of how our faith informs our healing journey. I don't have all the answers, but I am committed to going deeper and walking together. So whether you've been to therapy or know exactly what you believe when it comes to theology, I want to invite you to join this journey as we fearlessly name the complexities of our present reality and press into the hope of the gospel story. So are you ready? Let's jump into today's question and begin this journey together. Hi, I'm Rebecca Scott. As a servant of God, wife, and mother of four, I understand the juggle of multiple roles and stages. That's why I created the Encourager podcast to help guide us through the messy middle stage of life. Join me on the Encourager as we challenge the chaos and embrace harmony. Together, we'll create practical systems to balance your roles and fulfill priorities. And we will do it while having joy and energy for both home and work life. Tune in for inspiring stories and interviews, actionable tips, and methods to do both home and work life. Because here, we believe you can do all things, just not all at once. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Hello and welcome back to Therapy and Theology. Today we're going to be talking about something that I am very passionate about, which is trauma-informed faith. And I'm so excited to be sharing this time with Charles Kaiser. He is an author, pastor, and co-founder of Storyline Christian Communities in Dallas, Texas. He holds a doctorate of ministry and contextual theology from Northern Seminary and recently published his first book, co-authored with Elaine Heath, entitled Trauma-Informed Evangelism, Cultivating Communities of Wounded Healers. Charles is passionate about helping to heal religious trauma and also helping to form new trauma-informed healing communities of faith. So welcome to the show, Charles. I'm so honored to have you with me today. And I'd love for us to start by just having you share a little bit more about your journey and how you came to this work 
of religious trauma recovery and trauma-informed faith communities. Well, thanks for having me. I'm really grateful to be here. My journey recently started when I joined a a board gaming group that met on Sunday nights in a local bar in my neighborhood. And I, I didn't know th- at the time that that would lead me into the world of religious trauma recovery and trauma-informed faith and all these things we're, we're going to talk about. Uh, but over the course of uh, several years, you know, we, we became a part of this board, board gaming community and were invited into the homes of others and invited others into our own homes and just became this big extended family kind of of a, a community, went to weddings and took care of kids, the, the things that you do when yeah. you're in a, a really vibrant, wonderful community. And, and doing this kind of for me as a, we just moved to a new neighborhood and we were just wanting to show up in the neighborhood and love our neighbors, you know, just to see what God was up to. And these beautiful relationships and connections kind of came out of this, this board gaining group that we, we connected to maybe, maybe three years into that, I was in my doctoral program and I was learning about sociological research and ethnographic interviewing, learning culture and people. And I thought, I would love to try out some of these, these emerging skills in this board gaming community. And so I connected to eight or nine or 10 of my friends in this board gaming community said, Hey, can I interview you? I just want to learn about like, what makes this community tick? What makes it important and significant? And I didn't have like, you know, I'm a pastor. All my friends know that they've known me for three years. (laughs) I didn't have like overt spiritual interest per se in the interview. It's just curiosity and culture learning. But because I'm a pastor, I'm a spiritual person. Yeah, I can't help it. That's who I am. I had one yeah. question at the very end of the schedule, the interview schedule, where I was like, is there is there anything spiritual or transcendent to you about your experience in this board game community? And most of our friends in this community are self-described atheist, agnostic, not religious. And so predictably, they said, well, you know, I'm not sure. How to answer that question, I don't really have categories for transcendence. But then, almost to a person, they continued to say, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure how to answer that, but, but can I tell you about some of the terrible things that have happened to me in religion? And it just opened, uh, it was like right below the surface were these experiences of harm, and it opened up the possibility for them to tell some of their stories and some of their experiences. I didn't have language for it at the time, but what, you know, as I, as I dove in and leaned into what's going on here and, oh my goodness, I need to pay attention to this. You know, what I was encountering were experiences of spiritual abuse and religious trauma. And so that, that totally shaped the direction of my doctoral research I wrote my dissertation kind of on spiritual abuse and religious trauma. And interestingly, I think part of my draw to all of that was my own story because it surfaced for me, oh, I have wounds too. And that's part of my motivation to kind of learn about this so that I maybe I, there's healing for me to do too. Yeah, I think that's such an important aspect of this is like as we, I sit with clients frequently who are 
kind of walking through the same process of kind of untangling their own histories from what they kind of know to be true about God or like, I know, I I feel like there is this loving God. And yet my experience sometimes is very different of that, which is Im- impacting my view of God and how if we're sitting in that, we can't yet but align with it in a broken world, right? Like my story obviously is going to connect in some way if I look back on my own experiences of just other people, other humans being human. Yep. And so that can be tricky. Yes. So this season, the theme for the podcast is embodied. And we're going to be, we've been exploring over the last several weeks, the various angles of what embodiment means. And so specifically in this context, embodied faith is something that I'm really looking at and trying to understand. And today we're going to be looking at the barriers to embodied faith via spiritual abuse, religious trauma that in essence disembody us from ourselves and our relationship with God and others. So I think this topic is so important because it speaks to the lived experience, like we were just saying, of so many of all of us, I would say, right? Some At some point in our story, we can maybe align with this experience and gives voice to what it gives voice to what the good news of the gospel can be and what, how it's been weaponized to wound um, if we're not careful and compassionate in our witness and with our words. And so I'd love to begin with diving right into some differential language here for the term spiritual abuse, moral injury, and religious trauma. This is kind of the overview of what you give in the book. And I think it's brilliant and so helpful for people to kind of identify like, wait, do I have spiritual abuse or what is moral injury and how does that connect to religious trauma? Okay. So I've got my my concepts and lecture ready here. I'll, okay. I'll <laughs> ready. Teach I'll us. <laughs> put my teacher hat on here. Okay. So spiritual abuse, I would and I'm following others here. Yeah, sure. And, you know, clinical psychologists who would say that spiritual abuse is any abuse or trauma that occurs in the name of religion or the deity of that religion. So the, the distinctive of this of this kind of abuse, spiritual abuse, is that it happens in the context of religion or it's motivated by God. That doesn't mean it has to happen in a church building. It can happen sure. in a religious family system or in relationships that are organized by religion. So it's it's distinct to the extent that it is, it's motivated by, influenced by, brought about by religious or spiritual kind of context. And what's significant about that, it, it's not just the, 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 the distinction, but also the overlap. So, so yeah, yeah. spiritual abuse overlaps with every other kind of abuse, whether it's physical or emotional or sexual or psychological, any kind of abuse that happens in a spiritual context or that is enacted by a spiritual leader is simultaneously spiritual abuse. Spiritual abuse. And that's that's sometimes a hidden layer. And it is it's a really tough layer because it's not just uh this person potentially who's harming me, but it's also God somehow. Uh, God sure. is at play in this. And so, yeah, it can be doubly harmful because it's it's multifaceted in that way. So that's spiritual abuse. To talk about moral injury, the second concept you mentioned, I, I need to talk just for a second about trauma because I think moral injury is a kind of trauma. Um, it's very similar to trauma if it's not a type of trauma. But trauma, 
Bessel van der Kolk is one of my favorite definers of it. Yes. He talks about it simply as the the imprint of adverse experiences on our body and brain and mind. So it's the way that these really difficult, harmful experiences get stuck in our nervous systems in some form or fashion. So fight and flight and freeze and fawn and flock, all of those different responses, that's trauma. So moral injury is, is a, it's kind of a moral trauma. It's the trauma that occurs the way that the, the harmful experiences get kind of locked up in our bodies when there is a deep transgression or violation of our moral code. And this can be, this can be something that we witness. So it's, it's a kind of a secondary experience where I see a leader or a group or a person harm someone, spiritually abuse someone or hurt someone deeply. And that there's a psychic injury that occurs from, from seeing that. Or I participate in it, even unwittingly. I I sure. help to enact it and and realize that, well, because I'm following orders or because I'm in this system, even in the midst of that, something is breaking inside of me. Something is, my moral code is deeply violated by doing this or participating in this. And with moral injury, the, the symptoms, the responses of moral injury are identical to trauma. So it shows up in the same the same ways. And that's very appropriate for religious trauma because there are, there's moral injury that occurs because religion is very much wrapped up and connected and embedded with our moral systems, our morality. So that's moral injury. And then religious trauma, to piggyback on that language from Bessel van der Kolk, if, if, if trauma is the imprint of these adverse experiences on our minds and bodies and brains, then religious trauma is the imprint of adverse religious experiences like spiritual abuse or moral injury. It's, it's the imprint of those adverse religious experiences on our brains, on our bodies, on our minds. It's the way we carry those harmful experiences with us in our bodies. So to your theme, it both disconnects us from our bodies and the harm itself is embodied in our body. In our bodies. Yeah. For sure. I think that's such helpful language, being able to see kind of spiritual abuse and moral injury as being kind of like the, under the umbrella of potentially religious trauma in some sense, right? Like these are the the experiences that we're going to have that kind of lead to maybe the way our body response to walking into a church or having a religious conversation based on those experiences. Um, I I would love for you to share just in the experiences that you've had in the friendships that you've made in the gaming kind of world and the impact that you've been able to hear firsthand from that research. Namely, how have you seen people tend to view God based on these abusive experiences as we've been kind of naming and maybe what other symptoms or, or things are people sharing that could maybe just give more language to people that may be listening. Like what what is an experience of moral injury that's pretty common? I, the one that I kind of think of immediately because it's one that is brought up a lot in my office is when, you know, a leader falls for a moral indiscretion after he's, you know, preaching on it for 
a while uh, preaching against something and then it comes out that he's been like maybe hiding something or if leaders in like a youth group setting, you know, end up getting kind of called out in front of youth group children, you know, like those experiences can be really harmful. But I'm, I'm curious what your experiences have been in hearing those stories. So the impact of religious trauma on how we view God in my friends and my neighbor. So I would say this is descriptive rather than prescriptive. Yes. This is what I encountered in my friends. So it's not to to limit what's possible or what others' experiences might be, but this is just what I saw and heard in my own friends. So for and and I'll be honest and say it's hard for me to say for some of them I do think their imagination of God was deeply impacted by the trauma and abuse that they experienced. But it's really tricky for me to kind of parse out the extent to which that's true versus, you know, their family of origin or the the experiences that they've had right outside of that. Yeah. But uh, what I observed in my friends kind of along this spectrum of imagination about God uh, on one end, just that, and perhaps it's uh, for some, it was, very much a response to trauma and harm that they had experienced. But but just to say, okay, I'm going to close that down. God does not exist. This is that uh, if this is what God is, then surely that shouldn't even be a thing. That that cannot exist. They have ceased to believe that there is a God. And and some of them for sure, that's because of the harm that they mm-hmm. experienced. Others might imagine that if God does exist, then God is absent or negligent. Others might think that God is, in fact, an abuser. It wields judgment for sin and and is spiritually abusive and traumatizing. That is just God is like an absentee father or an abusive father abusive. Yeah. Uh, yeah. that we, we can't escape, and, and he is out to get us or something. And then further down the spectrum— there are like more favorable views of God that that would still kind of put God at a distance where God is distant, kind of the a, a deistic God. God is like this omniscient watchmaker who sets the world in motion, but is not to blame for what happens. And so it's a way to differentiate between this harm that I experienced, which was from people and institutions and groups or family members. But, you know, I think... God is probably not concerned about that. He started the world. He got it going and he's off doing whatever he wants to do wherever else. And so that it, it's a protective maneuver on in some levels like it sure. it buffers them from God. God is unconcerned. He's distant. He's way out there. And then kind of to the end of the spectrum there's this non-controlling God. I as I describe him this this is a God who's closer and more involved and loving than the watchmaker, a God who allows evil to occur. This God loves those who are abused, but there's still the mystery of, oh, God, why do you let all of this terrible stuff happen if you are loving? And uh, there's something inscrutable and mysterious about this non-controlling God, because if you're God, I mean, how, why and how does this stuff happen? So there's there's some tension still, even in that perception of God. So that's that's some of what I discovered in my in my friend's imagination and how they were they were navigating 
their own suffering and how God was at work or not at all in that. Yeah, I see that so much in my own work. And I, I liken it a lot to attachment experiences. Our attachment figures have a huge impact on our image of God. But I see this as like, that we have more than one attachment figure, right? Especially authority figures within church contexts have a large piece to play in that. And so it can really impact our our view, our image, as I say it, our image, our attachment with God uh, when we experience these adverse experiences in church or in Christian culture, et cetera. And so I think that that puts so much language around what so many people are experiencing, that question that you asked too of like, why would God allow this to happen? I had a client even recently say, where is God in all of this? And I was like, oh, that's a great, I was like, that's a great question. You know, where is he? Like, let's, well, like, how does that feel in your body when you say that? Like, it does create like a lot of questions, which I think for some, and maybe this is something that you could speak to too, of like, what do we do with this, right? Like, where do we go with this? Because I think there isn't a lot of, at least for my friends and clients, there hasn't been a lot of ability to talk openly about these wounds in the church context or even in their Christian circles, you know? And and then when we're identifying, like, even if you're listening to this right now, you're like, oh my gosh, like this, yes, my view of God is this, he's this cruel kind of lording God, or he just doesn't care at all about me. And I'm just left out here, you know, whether, whether, what other side of the spectrum you're on that can feel really isolating and really lonely. What have you guys done? Maybe I'll, this will be kind of a two-part question, but like, what have you guys done or in your communities to maybe just at least meet the felt needs of of those that are sharing this with you? And then I'd love for us to maybe then talk to those that are experiencing that. Like, what does it look like to maybe, what's the beginning of this process of seeing, I like how you use the language of like this new imagination of God um, and what that maybe looks like for people that are sitting in this experience themselves. Yes. Yes. You know, as you're sharing, it makes me think about being a, one of the churches I was part of. I remember sitting in the back row and I, I was an intern in this church. I was in an adult Bible class and I, you, you know, it, if you're in some of these religious circles, you might identify with the kind of the climate, like you just can feel if it's safe and acceptable Mm-hmm. ask questions or to wonder, ah, I don't know about that. Like, I know we've been taught that and we've always said that that was true or that's how we've always understood this. You can tell just by the initial response to any kind of doubt or hesitation, if that is welcome or not here. Yeah. And I think that's part of what is so important about cultivating space to talk about God and to explore imagination about God is that it has to be space that's safe enough to ask questions, to to doubt or to disbelieve, and it, and to know that it's going to be a shock-free kind of zone. You know that that there's nothing I can say in this space that will result in my rejection or my ostracization or or me being excommunicated like this. We're, we are free to say what we're thinking and wondering and believing that we're better for exploring that and that perhaps God is in the midst of that inquiry that is stirring in our hearts and souls. Yeah. That's very different than the 
just the consent and assent to a, a set of beliefs. And nope, it's dangerous for us to challenge or to question or to ask. I think it's more dangerous not to. I think people wilt on the inside when there's not space and freedom and safety to, to say, this doesn't square for me. How, how do I imagine God in light of these terrible experiences that I'm seeing my friends have or that I've had in my past? Openness about that has to be our way forward. I don't, I don't think shutting it down is a great alternative. Yeah, I talk a lot about that same thing about like not denying our experiences, right? And being able to kind of be in that space where like, I'm not denying my experiences and I'm also holding this like hope and openness okay. at the same time. This coexistence is kind of the language I put around it where two things can be true at the same time. And that's really tough if you're living in a black and white Christianity. <laughs> right? It's like, no, it's true. It's true. Or it's not true. It's yes or it's no. And oftentimes there's this this mystery, but it's a, it can be beautiful in, in the sense of when we get those needs met. I love that you use the term safety. And for those that are listening that are like, yeah, this is me. This is the first step, I think, of like finding and creating safety around like who is a safe person that you can go to and have these conversations. Maybe it's a therapist, maybe it's a friend, but to be able to even upfront, be able to say that and be like, hey, like I have some questions and what I don't need is for you to just throw a scripture at me. Yep. And be like, this is what you should believe. It's easy. It's because of the fall. It's a, like everyone just, just throws that suffering is because of the fall. And yet there is no like, oftentimes I see there's just like no empathy and and holding that space for people where we can be like suffering is not supposed to be. It wasn't supposed to be this way. There is a deep groaning that we have to acknowledge in that. And I think we sometimes have a hard time with that. Do you see, and this is kind of a secondary question that I don't have written down, but I want, I'm wondering, as we're talking about this, whenever we're talking about trauma, right, the question is always why, right? Like, like this is more of just like a heartfelt groaning for, for all of us. And I think you mentioned this in the book, and you do this very well with kind of giving this new experience of what the crucifixion resurrection of Jesus could be. And maybe we could just touch on it briefly, because I think oftentimes you term these, you have these two terms that you use that I think are really important when it comes to acknowledging suffering, but not glorifying it in like an unhealthy, weaponized way, because I think we can easily do that. And then we're almost shaming ourselves for feeling grief or shaming ourselves for being angry, but that's the process our body needs to take in order to heal. And so you talk about Christian masochism and Christian Satanism, and I don't know if it's easy to kind of maybe briefly share on those two topics, but how they can intersect with maybe unhealthy views of suffering versus this maybe new imagination of solidarity in our suffering. Yes. So, yes, Christian masochism and Christian sadism. I learned those terms from a theologian named Dorothy Soleil, and she uses these terms as a way of describing that in certain ways of thinking about God— we glorify or valorize suffering. We make suffering a noble thing in and of itself that is good and that should be ultimately, even if it's painful, experienced as a good and pleasurable silver lining, you know, kind of thing. So masochism generally, you know, broadly speaking, is receiving pleasure from the experience of pain. Yeah. 
sadism is receiving pleasure from being the one to inflict pain. So Christian masochism would be like a, a way of viewing suffering that is, in Dorothy Soleil's terms, like viewing my suffering that is, is always good in some form or f- fashion. It's either a test that we're required to pass, or it is punishment for our sins, or it's refining for the sake of sanctification. It's always one of those three. It's never something other than that. It always has to follow in the, this is serving a purpose kind of category. It can never be a tragedy in and of itself. It always has to be redemptive or helpful somehow. Christian sadism would, you know, kind of thinking about God as a good God who communicates and relates with us through causing suffering. You know, God sends all suffering. God is just. And all suffering is punishment for sin. Like the, these are some of the the frameworks and imagination worlds that Christians kind of live in about suffering. Absolutely. And it extends to the crucifixion and resurrection story that that what's happening in the cross, and this is a distortion of what I think is happening in the cross. And but like what's happening in the cross is God effectively is punishing, abusing traumatizing Jesus in the crucifixion and the resurrection. And and granted, God is doing that as a means to a good end, supposedly, but that's what it takes, that God has to, to punish and to cause suffering and to abuse and traumatize. And I just, I think that view of the, the cross is so deeply problematic because <laughs> yeah. it, it valorizes suffering and it glorifies yeah. God. Yeah. As traumatizer. For for abusing, yeah. Yeah. Right. Like we just make God the the abuser in chief, the cosmic tyrant in the sky. And is that the the god of the scriptures? Is that the the god of unfailing love and loving kindness? Ah, is that the god of Jesus? And so part of my reimagination and my invitation to reimagination is just to ask and to wonder, what what if that's not true? What if God is not the abuser? What if God is in unity with the Spirit and with Jesus and the cross in this experience of abuse and trauma, which is an experience of spiritual abuse? That that was what it, Jesus was on the cross as an act of spiritual abuse. It was instigated in part by religious leaders who were threatened by Jesus. So what what if what if God what if in Jesus God the divine community is experiencing this abuse and trauma, rather than perpetrating it, God comes into solidarity. God identifies with all of us who have experienced harm and abuse and pain. God knows what that's like because God God experienced that in as Father, Son, and Spirit in their own ways in the crucifixion and resurrection. And to the extent that Jesus is raised from the dead, you know, God, Jesus, Spirit are they are a religious trauma survivor. So they, they've walked through it. They, they embody a path of recovery and healing for us. One of my favorite Beautiful. definitions of trauma, and it's, it's funny to say favorite about trauma, but, <laughs> but favorite because it's insightful and sure. to me. Dr. Gabor Mate defines trauma as what happens to us and what we hold inside in the absence of an empathetic witness. Yeah, I love that. Kind of pointing to the degree that like, it's a sense of disconnection and isolation 
and feeling like no one is here to come no. to my aid or to help me. Really? And and our body kicks in all of its survival responses when it doesn't feel like anybody when when we feel abandoned or isolated or powerless. Conversely, Monte would say, so the 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 process of healing and recovery and resilience comes through the presence of an empathetic witness. And what I wonder and what I believe is true is that God in the person of Jesus is an empathetic witness to our pain and to the pain of our neighbors and to the pain of the world. And they're just by virtue of God's experience of that and seeing all of us in our own experiences of harm, there is something healing that happens to us when we yeah. when we experience and imagine and envision God in that way as the empathetic witness who comes into solidarity with us in our pain, who sees us and who says, I'm so sorry that happened to you. That should never have happened. That's so beautiful. And such a, I think for many, a new way of looking and envisioning God or embodying, I would even say, the presence of God in their own story, right? So good. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Therapy and Theology. I'm jumping back on here at the end of this episode to give a few resources and words of encouragement. As we talk about religious recovery, there's a lot that can come up. And so I encourage you to get Charles' book, Trauma-Informed Evangelism. For those of you that are wanting to explore more about what your religious trauma background might be, I also encourage you to find a therapist, a friend, or someone that is a safe person in your life that you can connect with as we look at what this might be for our bodies it's important to have people that we can feel safe with so also stay tuned next week for the conclusion of this interview with charles as we dive back into what it looks like to create spaces of safety and healing for those that have been wounded thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of therapy and theology if you have a question or topic you would like discussed on a future episode please feel free to email me or drop it in the comments Also, don't forget to subscribe to have each week's episode instantly downloaded to your podcasts and see the show notes for resources mentioned in this episode. To access more content and join my monthly email list for the latest updates and info, visit my website at carlymarkleer.com. There's no better way to start your day than spending time in God's word and in prayer. Don't know where to start? We have a free daily prayer podcast created to help you do just that. The Your Daily Prayer podcast delivers a thoughtful devotional and timely prayer to you seven days a week. Gain inspiration, faith, and encouragement with daily messages in 10 minutes or less. To start listening now, search Your Daily Prayer on your favorite podcast app or visit lifeaudio.com.